I see so many distinguished friends here that to say just simply, ladies and gentlemen, is not enough. <laughs> Highly esteemed friends and ladies and gentlemen, it is a great pleasure to welcome you today for an important academic event on transnational organized crime in Latin America and the Caribbean. More interesting, the topic subject of our conference has been examined, analyzed, and presented in a wonderful book whose lead author is our speaker this afternoon. I'm referring, of course, to Dr. Evan Ellis, a research professor at the U.S. Army War College Strategic Studies Institute. I've known Dr. Ellis since the early years of our Center for Latin American Studies here at Hudson. Back in 2005-2006, since then he has been a frequent expert in our public events. Believe me, Dr. Ellis is not only a specialist, but much more. Due to his encyclopedic knowledge of the fields he studies, and presents to his students and public. We're indeed very honored to host him this afternoon. An event such as this is not produced by a single individual. During the almost two decades I've been working with the Hudson Institute, I've been very lucky to count with the assistance of interns and officials of the Institute. Today's event was made possible by the collaboration of our new Director of Public Events, Mr. Sean Kelly, and his staff. And I thank Dr. John Walters, the Vice President of Hudson, which has been, to me, a very valued advisor. After Dr. Ellis has spoken, we will open a period of questions and uh, the dialogue. I would like to recognize here with us today I know, I know. I'm not so young, my friend. Um, I knew that uh, Roger was somebody very high up in the echelons of uh, intelligence and the army and all of that. So I, I never know how to introduce him as a general or, or, or sergeant or something. In any event, whatever you are, you're very welcome. <laughs> and here I give you our speaker. 
ladies and gentlemen, it's a real pleasure and privilege for me to be here uh, once again at, at Hudson to be able to uh, present uh, my, my new work on transnational organized crime. But uh, before I begin, I, first of all, I want to thank Jaime and, and Hudson for their, their, their generosity and friendship of, of always uh, you know, bringing me in to be able to, to share uh, this work and, and other works uh, with you. Uh, also, I, I want to uh, join uh, Jaime. I, I, I see a number of, of distinguished friends, but, um, but I'm also particularly moved to, to see Rodrigo Pardomar here in the audience. Uh, um, and I remember uh, many years ago when I first started my, my journey in the work on Latin America, China, Latin America, and, and, and Roger was DASD at, at, at the time. Um, and you hear amazing stories that I don't think I'm at liberty to, to share with you today, um, but, um, but just an exceptional uh, uh, scholar and exceptional individual uh, um, that really uh, you know, not only uh, helped to advance our, our DOD policy role in, in Latin America, but, but also just somebody who really uh, has always known and understands the region and really comes to the region as, you know, both, again, a scholar and a practitioner. And so I'm, I'm honored, Roger, to, to have you here um, and, in, in in, of course, uh, the rest of you distinguished uh, friends and guests. So what, uh, what I'd like to do today, and I'll try I'm notably uh, long-winded, uh, so uh, I, I will try to uh, make it uh, re a relatively limited presentation. But um, I had the privilege, uh, after about 14 years in, in the private sector working on Latin America and, and other issues, to uh, work uh, for about um, six years at what is now known as, as the Perry Center. It's a DOD's outreach center for uh, working with uh, ministries of, of defense in the Western Hemisphere. And in that, I, I felt very fortunate to have the opportunity to, to interact with, with a number of our, our partners in the region, um, you know, in, uh, in, in, in armies and other militaries and ministries in the security sector. And uh, then after that, I, I had a, another great force to be able to, to join what is my, my current position um, as the uh, head of, of Latin America for the U.S. Army War College uh, um, and its uh, Strategic Studies Institute, basically the Army's think tank to help uh, the Army and, and DOD um, think about uh, strategic issues uh, impacting us in, in, in the future. But during that roughly 10 years, I, I had the opportunity um, in having these, these conversations and, and to work in the region to, to see a lot of what our partner nations uh, are doing against uh, many of, of the threats that uh, they confront. So insecurity, crime, violence, other, other strategic issues. And so uh, during the past really three, four years, um, as I tried to find time to put together a book, I thought, well, what can I do that really distinguishes uh, this work from so many of the other very good works on regional security issues that are, that are out there? And so what I've tried to do with, with this uh, book, which literally is just hitting the streets, uh, you know, one, one April. And so um, you know, I... I I, I would encourage all of you to uh, buy at least three or four copies. Um, <laughs> but, um, but of course, I, I, I did certain traditional things. I, I took a look at the, um, the, the region and, and uh, the different uh, uh, criminal activities in the region. And what I tried to do uniquely about that, and here's our clicker. Let me actually start the presentation forward. Um, what, I, what I try to do uniquely with respect to that is, is really to try to get the focus away from just talking about narco-trafficking, which is, of course, something very important, but also the interaction between narco-trafficking, human flows, other illicit activities, whether it's contraband goods, illicit mining, um, you know, illicit money flows, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but also to focus on the groups. And uh, so there's a relatively detailed chapter literally going from, from Mexico to the Southern Cone. Um, 
And the real theme that comes out with respect to the groups is this issue of fragmentation. I think this is something that's very important for us to understand. Um, and you hear bits and pieces in different parts of the region, but I don't think we fully understand the degree of fragmentation that is, is taking place. Um, and in part, it's come from the successes that the United States um, and working with our partner institution has had in this. Much in the same way that we have gone after the leadership and in, in other elites in, in places like Afghanistan, whether it's Al-Qaeda or ISIS, et cetera, um, also our partner nations have gone after the criminal elites, whether it's the, you know, the, the Gulf Cartel or Los Zetas or, or, or Sinaloa, et cetera. Um, but in that process, um, there has been a tremendous fragmentation. And that fragmentation has come about in, in a, a number of different ways. First of all, obviously, is, is when you take down a you know one relatively cohesive group, you have often fights between um, the, the different lieutenants who would you know want to you know take take control. And so you know one group breaks into three or, or so. Um, but there's also complementary processes that have taken place. And so one of those, um, and it actually came out of a very interesting phenomenon uh, about uh, um, that started about a decade ago in Mexico, when first the Gulf cartel with Los Zetas and, and then uh, other, other groups, uh, um, the Sinaloa cartel in reaction, began employing basically elite military forces, um, who then ironically turned on the previous masters um, and became entities of, in, in themselves. And some of those groups actually that couldn't reach out and hire paramilitary organizations such as Lizetas just hired local street gangs. And so you've got this proliferation of groups. So it was the cartels and, and then the fragments of the cartels and each of them having their armed wings and the armed wings versus the previous elements of the cartels. Um, and then new opportunistic groups that got into the melee. And so um, you have a situation where Mexico alone went from you know, roughly, um, there, there's a time when you could talk about, you know, one general group. You had El Señor de los Cielos and the Guadalajara cartel, although there is still the Gulf cartel on the, on, on the, uh, the, the East Coast. Um, but for a time, you could talk about maybe three big cartels. And then by the time you got to the uh, Sesenio of Felipe Calderón, you could talk about uh, eight cartels roughly. Uh, now, by some estimates, uh, Mexico alone has as many as, as 245, perhaps more, uh, different groups. And again, it's, it's factions and it's gangs and it's opportunistic new groups. It's just a real diversity. Um, but it doesn't just stop in Mexico. Thanks in part to some of the successes we've had, if you start looking across the region, what you find is that it's just about every place in the supply chain, not only of narco-trafficking, but human beings and contraband goods um, that moves from the southern cone to, you know, through the Caribbean, through Central America to the United States. And so, for example, um, it used to be that um, as drugs moved through Central America, you had criminal intermediary groups. Uh, um, they're oftentimes known as the transportistas in places like Guatemala, in places like Honduras, um, even in El Salvador. Um, in Honduras, for example, there was a family, uh, uh, two families really, um, uh, one group which is known as the Cachiros, another group which is known as the Valle Valles. Um, and, but thanks in part to organizations, um, and oftentimes it's about the money. So uh, the US Treasury Department and our, our, our Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, otherwise known as FinCEN, working with financial intelligence units and intelligence organizations in the region, um, really succeeded 
needed and taking down a lot of those leaders in, in Central America. And so 2014, 2015, um, the leadership of the Valle Valles, the Maragada family falls, the leadership of, of the Cachiros fall. Um, in Guatemala, the same thing. Um, some of the big, politically well-connected uh, drug families, uh, the Mendozas, the Lorenzanas, the Lopez Ortiz group, um, basically become decapitated, break into different groups. And so you look into Central America today and how drugs move through Central America, and you find it's no longer two or four or five transporter families that work with the big cartels. Um, in Guatemala alone, you're now talking 40 or 50 different groups. It's, it's a whole criminal economy. Um, but you look at Colombia, and it, it's a similar thing for different reasons. And so in Colombia, as, as you may be aware, you have the, uh, the, the recent peace accords uh, by which the FARC has been demobilized. Uh, part of the FARC uh, went into the hands of the ELN. Others went into the hands of, of the criminal bands, the famous Bakrim. Um, but the FARC used to be a big player in basically moving cocaine or actually uh, growing cocaine and then dealing with its, its movement out of Colombia. Um, that has begun to change. Um, the ELN and its position has changed. Uh, in the east, where... Uh, you know, literally hundreds of thousands of Venezuelans desperate now, now stream in and, and the always complicated border region. Um, you have, again, other, other groups, the uh, Puntilleros, uh, uh, who are now struggling for control. And so my point about this is, if you, um, is the second category that I address in the book, this whole issue of, of who are the groups. The big point about that is the lesson of fragmentation and what that strategically means. Because from Colombia, um, and the reorientation and the fragmentation of different groups there to the fragmentation of the Central American supply chain. And, and similar things are happening in the Caribbean as well with new drug flows through Trinidad and, and, and up the Eastern Caribbean states and into the Bahamas, uh, new flows through Central America. Again, um, you know, the 30 or 40 groups in each of the Central American countries um, in the, 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 the street gangs who are now getting involved more and more directly in drugs, uh, uh, factions such as the Normandy Locos and Fulton Locos in, in El Salvador, um, all of those looking to figure out, well, who do we work with on the Mexican side? Um, and so do we work with Sinaloa, but Sinaloa is now weakened? Do we work with Lisco Nueva Generacion? Um, and so the whole, and, and it's not just fragmentation competing for what they used to call plazas, but it's also fragmentation in terms of the supply chain through Mexico itself. And so there used to be a time in which groups such as the Carrillo Fuentes group in Mexico or the or 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 the um or 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 or, or others um could um could move drugs from Colombia all the way through Mexico to the southern border, etc. However, now some of those groups now are just doing extortion or other things. Some of those groups are moving the drugs through part of Mexico because they don't have the contacts that they used to with, with the Mexicans. And so it's not only competition for plazas, but it's, it's opportunities for conflict among the whole supply chain. And it's just a real scramble of who are the new groups that are working with, with who. And so it creates opportunities for violence. It creates opportunities for uncertainty. And it creates a lot of difficulties in how do you manage and, and how do you stay on top of and how you take down this evolving infrastructure. Um, now, that leads me into the third major part of, of the book, which is comparative solutions. Um, and this goes back to the point that I, I started out with, which is um, 
Oftentimes we talk about, well, what's going on in the region, but we don't focus a lot on the really valuable things that our partner organizations are doing there. And so as I started reflecting on, on the work that I've had the opportunity to do as um, you know, working, you know, working as, as part of the U.S. government uh, with our partners, um, and one thing very important I need to make sure that is, is said here today is um, I'm speaking today as an academic, and so um, none of the things that I say are, you know, reflect in any way the position of my institute, the Strategic Studies Institute of the U.S. Army War College, nor the U.S. government in any way. They are completely my responsibility, um, in, in my opinions. Um, so got the caveat in there. Um, but as I reflected on these things, I thought, you know, really a lot more needs to be said about what our partners are really doing um, in conjunction with us and what we can all learn from each other, what works well, what doesn't work well. So um, the biggest chapter in this book uh, is focused on comparative solutions. Um, and there are a number of very specific technical areas. And so uh, one area is national security policy and strategy planning. Uh, there are a variety of different things supported by organizations in the US government, like, like MODA and DIRI and the Perry Center, um, that um, you know, they deserve recognition. Uh, other things are, what are the lessons, what works well and doesn't in, in counter-value targeting and high-value targeting, um, in interdiction, uh, the details of land interdiction, maritime interdiction, um, you know, air, aerial interdiction that we don't talk a lot about. Um, across the region, different governments are using the military in different ways to support the fight. What things can different governments learn in the different national contexts about that. So for example, what is permitted by the Honduran constitution where the military actually is constitutionally authorized to directly exercise certain police powers is different than what El Salvador is doing, um, which is different than what Argentina can do under its 1988 uh, you know, constitution, etc. But within that context of the different laws, there are a lot of things that we can learn in terms of, of best practices. Um, also, police reform um, is going on across the region to try to root corruption out of, out of police forces. Um, and it's a lot harder than you might think. It's not just about, well, just giving them all polygraph tests and, and firing those who don't. And I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but, uh, but, also, but also collaboration. We talk a lot about whole of government solutions and, and international collaboration. There's actually a lot of interesting things that are going on, especially in Central America with the Conference of, of Central American Armies with CFAC, as, as well as a Conference of American Armies and, and others um, of, of, of collaboration. Bilateral collaboration, the things uh, which we refer to as, as the combi fronts, basically frontier committees where you, where you coordinate things like intelligence and, and movement of, of forces to better control frontiers, um, the fight against corruption, et cetera. Um, so the bottom line is, is that third really detailed part of the, the, the book takes a look at what can we learn from these best practices? Because my sense was this is something that we don't talk a lot about. And it was something where I wanted to leverage a lot of my experience to, to try to contribute to the debate. Um, and then, of course, in the end, there are some policy solutions. So that gives you an idea of some of the, the big things that, again, I talked about, uh, I talk about in general in, in the book. And, um, and again, it's a, it's a wonderful book. It's, it's relatively a short read. I won't tell you it's a, a, a highly entertaining read, but it's a detailed read. Again, please feel free to each of, of you buy five or six copies as, as, you, as you see fit. Um, so let me, uh, let me move beyond just talking about the book to talk about some of the themes that I develop in the book, thinking about these issues. And so what I want to start out with is the idea of um, how do we understand national organized crime? And I'll go through this relatively quickly in the interest of time. But um, number one is this idea that um, 
not all transnational crime groups are, are, are the same. And I found it useful to develop a rough typology. All typologies are imperfect, but thinking about the big groups, and I call them cartels, um, but we're not talking about just the Mexican cartels, but some of the larger um, criminal bands in places like Colombia, et cetera. Um, also, there are a series of intermediary groups. So in Latin America, we talk about the transportistas, but these are groups that play very important roles, uh, whether it's laundering money or, or whether it's moving drugs or smuggling other goods. But um, without them, the wheels of the criminal economy couldn't function. Um, and it's important to understand the relationship between those groups and others. There are other groups, and I refer to them as gangs. Um, and yes, I'm uh, talking in part about Marisal Vitrucci and Barrio Diciocho in, 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 in the Northern Triangle. But I'm also talking about gangs in other contexts, um, so, so for example, in, 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 uh, um, in uh, um, in uh, Panama, Baghdad, and Calor Calor, um, and, and others uh, in the Mexican context as well, but groups that have more of a territorial orientation that mostly concentrate on robbery and extortion and doing things and, and charging rents for what goes on illicitly and otherwise on the territory with, within their control. And so understanding how all these groups work together, and of course also the, let's call them political groups. Uh, there's a, a bit of a debate on, on whether, for example, the FARC or others, are they terrorists, are they criminal organizations? Um, I just prefer to, to regard this idea that some gangs have more explicitly political goals than, than, than others do. And so I talk about this typology. Also important to recognize that what groups do to gain money is oftentimes shifting. And it shifts in conjunction with government policy and also successes and failures. And so it's not just about moving drugs. It can be um, about contraband. It can be about extortion. It can be about kidnapping, et cetera. Um, also, it's about legitimate business as much as it is about illicit activities. Um, and often, this is a fundamental point that we often overlook, that there's kind of a yin-yang relationship, that you cannot have the operation of a criminal economy without the operation of a legitimate economy. First of all, you can't move things and organize things without you know, legitimate transportation networks, legitimate financial networks. You can't launder money without legitimate businesses, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and, and also, frankly, you need the informal economy as well. And so if you don't have fundamentally an unregulated cash economy, which is bigger in some American states than others, um, it's very difficult to hide the money. And frankly, it's very difficult to recruit the people who are going to be the members of your gangs or the members or the foot soldiers in, in your organization. Um, so it's really understanding the interdependence of the illicit and the illicit, the formal and the informal. Um, and also, frankly, it always comes down to, well, what really matters? And at the very end of the presentation, I'm going to come back to an argument about the importance of, um, of, of thinking systemically. Because what I would argue is that we talk a lot about whole-of-government solutions. But my experience, both on the US side and on, the, on, on our partner nations, is when you say, well, what is your strategy? Oftentimes, the strategy is, well, the armed forces will do this, and the police will do this, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's like, OK, theoretically, there's a strategy. But um, as my, my, my colleagues who, who talk about strategy development at the Army War College often you know, remind yourself, you really need to have a strategic concept. What is your fundamental concept about what you're trying to achieve and how you're going to go about it, how you are going to defeat the enemy, achieve your goals, et cetera, aside from the, the different lines of action that you may have? 
Um, and what I would argue is that we do very, very poorly in actually having a strategic concept of what are we going to go after. So um, at the very end, I'm going to talk about, well, how we need to have a strategic concept. And so in anticipating the fact that you'll all come back and say, well, you know, easy to, 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 to lament this. Well, well, why don't you give us your strategic concept? So I'm going to put it up front. To me, the concept has, there are three what I call centers of gravity. And for those of you who know military issues, a center of gravity is not the thing on the battlefield that is the most vulnerable um, or the easiest to affect. But they're the things that if you believe that if you can affect those things, um, you believe that you will have the most significant impact on the outcome. And so for me, in the you know, roughly 10 years that I've been thinking about these, these issues in the security environment, um, I've really come down to three kind of core concepts. Number one is resources. As my colleague uh, at the Perry Center, Selena Riulio, often says, um, go after the money. Because if you think about it, everything else that transnational organized crime does in the region has to do with money. So without money, you can't bribe. Without money, you can't move product. Without money, you can't create organizations. Without money, you can't uh, create arms. And even if you can do those things, if you can't successfully repatriate and hide your money, that whole system begins to break down. So if you can fundamentally stop those money flows or take away the money, um, everything else with time begins to fall apart. It's not easy, but it's an interesting point. Number two, corruption. We talk a lot about corruption, but really think about how corruption makes this problem so hard to solve. I mean, obviously, at the level of flows, um, if you have corrupted police, if you have other corrupted officials, um, that helps protect organizations and make it that much harder to intercept things going through. But corruption is much more insidious than that. Because so, for example, if you have corruption in a police force, it becomes very difficult to share information um, to do things. If you have corruption, interagency sharing becomes impossible. Um, I see many cases in which um, you know, military operating in support of the police, um, you, you need the two or three police officers to actually realize the arrests. But um, because you're convinced that the police officers are, are compromised. Um, you don't actually tell the police officers what the operation is, where you're going, or who you're going after until everybody are, is in the vehicles and, and on the way. Um, so you, know, you, know, you, need them to you, you need the police officers to arrest them, but if you tell the police officers too much, you're convinced that they're going to compromise the operation. Um, we have a similar problem oftentimes when we do international collaboration. So you know, what are the units that we feel that we can share our information with, our good information that comes, whether it's from national intelligence means or DEA or, or et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so with corruption, all of those things break down. But it also breaks down at the social level. Because if I, as a citizen in a country, am convinced that the local police person is, um, is, is on the take or the, the judicial system, the judges are, are bought, um, well, why should I risk my own life to report the crime in the first place if reporting the crime may just get me reported and something happens to my family. Um, or, uh, you know, or even so, if, if I'm convinced that nothing's going to happen, why should, what, why should I report? Or if I'm convinced that I'm going to be vulnerable as a witness, why should I stand as a witness? And if there are no witnesses, you know, you know, who's going who's to take, you know, who's going to, you know, how do the cases get, get prosecuted? And so, and, and frankly, without that faith also, even basic things like intelligence, collaboration of the population of who's the bad guys, what are, what are they doing, can, can they affect me? So everything breaks down. Um, the judicial system breaks down with, with corruption. The intelligence system breaks down without corruption. Interagency collaboration breaks down without corruption. So really getting to the root of that corruption um, and perceived impunity, which is the yin and yang of corruption, 
um, is, is fundamental. And finally, political will. Um, political will in the sense that just about everything that you do against organized crime has a cost in terms of lives and economic costs. So if you think about Mexico, uh, which was really probably a very heroic action by first uh, Felipe Calderon and, and his sexenio in Mexico, uh, continue with uh, Enrique Peña Nieto's administration, um, think about the cost of hundreds of thousands of people who have been killed. You can say, you know, you know, should it have been more? Should it have been administered differently? But there's clearly a cost. Or in Honduras, when, for example, uh, they went after um, you know, not only the Cachiros, but the Cachiros exposed that the fact that they very uh, important uh, financial uh, group, uh, Banco Continental and Grupo Continental and, and Jaime Rosenthal were, were apparently involved in that. Um, it's kind of like if we said, okay, you need to shut down Citibank here in the United States. Um, basically, taking down Grupo Continental in Honduras, which was involved in about a fifth of the entire local economy. Um, or the same thing with Nidal Huaqued in, 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 in Panama, one of the most important financiers and businessmen in Panama. So doing these things exert pain. And there's always the temptation that, okay, we're going to say that we're going after the bad guys, but we're actually, what we're going to do is just manage the violence and keep it below a certain level. And so when we on the US side are supporting our partners, it's always important to focus not only the pressure, but also the attention on um, how do we help to maintain our partners' political will to root out that problem? And frankly, how do we maintain our own political will? Um, and and uh, we can get into that in Q&A if we want to. Um, because, uh, so let me uh, move a little bit more quickly, uh, um, a few things with uh, the transit zones uh, here. So. One thing that's important to recognize with respect to Latin America is that, of course, again, you have flows not just of drugs, but people, arms, money, and, and other things. Also, we focus a lot because it's politically salient. Um, most of the drugs that make it to the United States um, come from, for example, in cocaine, Colombia as a source-owned country, although with uh, opioids, for example, you see uh, new emergent uh, sources, uh, for example, the Northern Triangle region in, in, in Mexico, um, so places like Sinaloa, places like Guerrero, um, San Marcos in, in Guatemala. Um, but in general, um, we focus a lot on the flows that come from basically Colombia and in the northern part of the southern through Central America, through Mexico, or through the Caribbean to, to the United States. But we often don't see is there other flows that, from a Western Hemisphere perspective, are also very destabilizing for our partners. And so, for example, um, you have emergent uh, new flows and the expansion of certain flows in Peru. It's not just the uh, Apurimac, Eni, and Mentado River valleys anymore, the famous Vraim in, in Peru, um, and previously the Alta Huayaga Valley um, as, as sources of, of cocaine production. But now they are moving into the east of that. They're moving into the southeast in places like Puno on the border of Bolivia. They're moving into the less productive but still important and, and relatively unsupervised jungle regions around Iquitos um, and the way that allows you to move drugs into the Amazon basin into, into, into Brazil. Um, but, so you have these changes in Peru. You have the expansion as the new uh, International Narcotics Control Strategy Report that was literally just released this past week has emphasized um, the absolute undercompliance of, of the Bolivian government in, in that fight and the basically authorized expansion of, 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 of coca production there. 
Um, and what you see is not only coca, but illegal mining and other things moving Peru, Bolivia, into the south. And especially with drugs, what is happening is that moves down into Argentina. It's created a big problem in Buenos Aires in Argentina. It's created a problem in Rosario, which is a strategic port that lets you move drugs as well as agricultural goods and other things to, to Europe. Um, it, uh, you have a, a big problem, of course, in the southeast of, of Brazil, so places like, like Sao Paulo and Rio de Janeiro, that kind of belt of, of prosperity in, in, in Brazil and then on to, uh, to, to, to Europe. Um, you have also a strategic problems in places like, like, um, like, like Paraguay, which right now literally just this month is in the middle of a very interesting uh, election, but um, basically finds itself at just the strategic crossroads of, of South America for marijuana and, and other type of, of, of drug movements. And so what we oftentimes don't realize, for example, if we look at the politics of Brazil, um, and we often forget that Brazil is, oh, about half of the entire population of South America has an armed forces that is actually bigger than all the rest of the armed forces in Latin America combined, is about half of the territory of, of South America with, with borders uh, on, on, on 10 other South American nations. Um, so oftentimes, we, because Brazil, they, they speak Portuguese, we neglect Brazil and, and Brazil's importance. Um, but so, for example, in Brazil, um, we focus a lot on Mexico and cartels like Sinaloa. But in Brazil, you have a series of street gangs. Um, you have a, a, a one small group called the, the First Capital Command. You have another group called the uh, called the Red Command, uh, Command of Amelo. And um, what has happened is especially the PCC, the First Capital Command, has expanded not only into Brazil, but into Paraguay, into Bolivia, into Peru. Their cells show up in Argentina. Um, and a lot of the, the fights, you may have heard about the fights in, in the, the favelas, in, in the poor areas of, of Rio de Janeiro and in other places. Um, a lot of those is between um, the surrogates for the PCC and the old surrogates of Commando Vomelo. Or you may have heard of the prison uh, riots uh, that actually happened in, in the northeast of, of Brazil last, last January and in, in May. Or you may have heard something about uh, some of the problems in Vitoria and other places. Um, all of these problems are indirectly related to the surge of these gangs, which are in part tied to drugs. So what is my point with relaying all these details to you? That indirectly, we, we focus on those north-south flows, but those East-West flow, Peru, Bolivia, Paraguay, Argentina, et cetera, um, those flows are changing the political landscape and the criminal landscape of South America with very significant political impacts, with very significant sociological impacts. Um, and those impacts um, create strategic opportunities for, for others, whether it's Russia or China, et cetera. So, you know, don't overlook what's going on in the Southern Cone just because, um, you know, Mexico in, in, in South America is, is, is closer. Um, and in the interest of time, I'm, I'm going to advance a little bit more quickly because I, I know that uh, while I would personally like to chat until the wee hours of, of this morning, I, I, some of you probably have other things to do. Um, let me just mention very quickly a few of my concerns. Um, and I mentioned, again, um, the concern in Mexico. Um, one of the things that particularly worries me in Mexico, the fragmentation I mentioned is happening at a time when Mexico has been hit by multiple other things. So it's the fragmentation plus expanded deportations, plus the renegotiation of NAFTA, plus increasingly difficult political relationships. I consider myself a relatively conservative port, uh, person. Um, but there is a very serious concern whether um, the Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, the, the candidate on the left's Morena party, comes into Mexico. Although he himself might not be a, you know, a, 
a, a, a, a Maoist red book toting, you know, friend of Castro. Um, the people that could come in with AMLO in Mexico could take Mexico, a strategic important partner for the prosperity and security of the United States, in a very troubling different direction. And with Mexico, the influence that Mexico has in the Caribbean and Central America, um, and with those changes, a fundamental negative impact on the strategic position and security of the United States in our own hemisphere. So Mexico worries me just a little bit, and I think there are good reasons for that. Um, Northern Triangle, again, similar things. If you think about where the street gangs, Mara Salvatrucha, Barrio 18, came from, in part, they came from the Rampart District in Los Angeles. Those, those people um, had largely fled uh, El Salvador, had largely fled Guatemala, and indirectly had gotten out of Honduras because Honduras was kind of caught in the middle, um, but had come to um, largely to Los Angeles. Um, but then as the kids got involved in criminal activities, and, and then in, in starting in about 2000, we noticed, ah, there are all of these undocumented immigrants in Los Angeles with criminal priors who had joined these new street gangs, in part aligned with the Mexicans and some to protect themselves against the Mexicans. Um, and we said, well, 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 illegal aliens with criminal priors, let's get them out of here, let's deport them. And so in mass, we started deporting all these criminal aliens, for good or for bad. Um, they wound up in the streets of San Pedro Sula, Tegucigalpa, San Salvador, etc. And in many ways, that was the birth of, of this new bloody street gang phenomenon. Well, ironically, after a decade of, of that struggle, um, we are on the cusp of a new wave of expanded deportations, however justified that may be, um, plus an end to temporary protected status for many who have come here previously, um, in, con in conjunction with the possibility of cutting aid for the Northern Triangle countries. And again, I say this from a conservative perspective, but when I strategically look at how we got the modern problem before that came to really grab us here in Washington, D.C., um, I see the risk of us doing the exact same thing to our Central American partners, um, just as they're trying to get some control over the problem that was unleashed a decade ago. Um, the Caribbean, similar things. Um, a little island called Española, which is shared by the, Repub the Dominican Republic and, and, and Haiti. Uh, the United Nations, uh, bless its heart, uh, declared uh, victory in, in its uh, multinational peace operations called Ministan in Haiti and replaced themselves with a much less capable and smaller uh, police force there, um, something that has our Dominican partners extremely concerned. Um, but so you have um, concerns about what is happening not only in Española, but you also have, at this moment, um, not only affecting Colombia, but other places, a massive outward uh, migration of Venezuelans as, as that country economically and, and politically collapses, which has affected not only Colombia, but has also affected um, the Dominican Republic. Um, I, I was just there in Santo Domingo a couple months ago, and, and it's amazing how many Venezuelans, um, um, literally, I think, uh, eight out of the 10 Uber drivers that I had in Santo Domingo were displaced Venezuelans. It's, uh, at a personal level, it, it's amazing, the, the impact. Uh, you have, um, on top of that, of course, you have the changing status of, of Cuba with, with uh, you know, the new kind of consolidation of, of power coming right now with the Miguel Diaz-Canal and, and other factors. Um, you have the dramatic expansion of cocaine production. Remember that in Colombia, um, about uh, two years ago, they stopped what was a relatively effective way of controlling cocoa production, which was a herbicide called glyphosate. Uh, and once they stopped that, for whatever environmental reasons, um, we've seen literally by a factor of about three to four, uh, cocaine production in Colombia has taken off. And with that, uh, cocaine is, is literally the new flows that are being seen by all of our partners throughout the Caribbean and other places are, are worrisome. 
Um, again, I mentioned Colombia, so um, we can get into Venezuela and Colombia in, in the Q&A, but, um, but it's a very worrisome diet. Um, Colombia has basically declared victory um, with the demobilization of, of the FARC, although it appears that um, problem number one is that the money is not there to actually pay for all the programs that were promised to the FARC. There are a lot of, of, of things with transitional justice and, and other things which, in the context of, of uh, what will happen in the current Colombian elections, are of concern. Um, but on top of that, you have the FARC passing into the hands of, of the ELN, who is the other major leftist guerrilla group who is not going to the negotiating table, or at least is not enthusiastic about staying at the negotiating table. You have others going into the hands of the criminal bands that I mentioned before. And if that were bad enough, and think about if you're familiar with the situation on, on the Mexican border, how when you combine narco-trafficking organizations trying to get across the border, trying to get product across the border, um, and you pour into that mix hundreds of thousands of desperate people uh, looking for, for options. Um, that's why human trafficking and narco-trafficking always are a very dangerous reinforcing dynamic. But if you know about it in the Mexican border, something even worse is happening on the Colombia-Venezuela border, which has always been problematic and, and, and fluid. Um, so if you can't find enough to eat or medicine for your family in Caracas and you decide that you're going to make the land trek to, to Colombia, the logical way to do it is basically follow the highway along the mountains till you get down to the Colombian border near a little town called Cuqueta. Um, and so what you actually see is the major place that Venezuelans are streaming into Colombia, I think now 1.5 million by, by one estimate. Um, uh, so it's just an enormous problem. And those are just the ones who stay. Um, but on the Colombian side of the border, you have a place called Norte de Santander. Um, and in Norte de Santander, you've got a little place called Catatumbo, which is one of the most lawless, narco-infested, fought-over, cocaine-producing parts of, of all of Colombia. And so, again, you've got the EPL, the ELN, remnants of the FARC, other criminal bands fighting for this, producing lots and lots of cocaine out of there. And right there, streaming into Cuqueta, you have hundreds and hundreds of thousands of desperate Venezuelans and also the, the ties of the Venezuelan National Guard on, on their side. And so it's just a disastrous cauldron that, that just creates not only an opportunity for Venezuela to continue to implode, but also for that implosion to be transmitted like a cancer into Colombia. Um, and believe me, this is a, a very real concern for our, our Colombian partners. Um, and if you look at one of the reasons why uh, all these things that I just mentioned in Colombia, you say, well, why is it that even Duque, the, the Urabista candidate, is, is so far ahead in the polls right now? It, it has a little bit to do with maybe what you don't hear in the Washington Post or New York Times, but, um, but, but really this frustration that the Colombians feel about the, the situation. Um, think about how political correctness had very real outcomes in US presidential elections here. Um, something very, very similar is, is happening in Colombia, but it's, it's, it's concern for the whole hemisphere. Um, I talked about the Southern American drug belt. Um, one of the other things that it's important to talk about is trans-Pacific organized crime. Uh, Latin Americans, and this is in a number of different areas. It's not only Chinese coming in um, following uh, traditional routes, but, it, but it's also, um, so it's not about human trafficking and the role of Chinese communities in the region with that. It's about uh, precursor chemicals. Uh, the major source currently of precursor chemicals, especially now that India has controlled many of their precursor chemicals flu, um, the major source right now is actually China. Um, the major source also of some of the synthetic drugs and their associated chemicals is also China right now, working with groups like Sinaloa Cartel and Jalisco Nueva Generacion. 
Um, on top of that, you actually have drug flows that are going into Asia, uh, in part uh, going into the coastal provinces, and so places like Shanghai and also Hong Kong, and also non-Chinese places like Singapore. Um, but um, there are flows go both ways. You have contraband goods flows uh, coming through the region into places like the port of Cologne and Panama. You have weapons flows. Um, you have increasingly trade-based money laundering as well as financial money laundering. So there's a wonderful scheme, for example, that was exposed about two years ago by the DEA, um, in which basically Mexican cartels were taking the dollars that they earned here in the United States, um, sending them basically to Colombian um, functionaries who were working actually in China. Um, the Colombians would then take the U.S. dollars. In, in part, they were laundering the money through Chinese banks and, and, and through um, also money-changing houses in China. But they were also buying stuff in China. This is part of what they call trade-based money laundering, importing the goods um, by pseudo-legitimate uh, organizations um, into places like Cologne and Panama, and then distributing it. And you know, voila, you know, legitimate business, selling legitimate goods in, in Latin America, effectively using China to launder the money of Mexican drug cartels. So it's, it's very international. Um, but the point about all of this is, how many Latin American law enforcement personnel with everything else on their plate do you think speak Mandarin Chinese? Um, how many have agents who can effectively penetrate Chinese communities in, in the region. And oh, by the way, um, most of those communities uh, don't speak Mandarin. They, they speak the language that at least uh, the elders spoke when they came over at the end of the 19th and early 20th century, which tend to be Cantonese or Hakka. Um, and OK, so, so how many Latin American law enforcement officials speak Cantonese? How many Latin American law enforcement officials, when they intercept a bus of people who appeared to be roughly Oriental, because in Latin America, you know, all people, whether you're from Japan or Korea or China, they're all Chinos. Um, how many of those people you know, can the law enforcement can pick up the phone and call their 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 good colleague in Fuxian to say, hey, you know, who is this group of people that we are trying to interrogate? Um, because Latin American law enforcement do have the capability in picking up the phone and calling the contacts with US FBI or, or or others. My point is that there is a huge emerging issue of illicit flows that follow the licit flows in Latin America. Um, and it's something in which the training, the personnel, and the context of Latin American law enforcement is hugely unprepared to face. But even more worrisome than the, the hugely un, guess who guess who is, is willing to step in the breach to help fill that, that gap? Um, in Santiago, Chile, just a couple, um, just in January, um, during the, the most recent new three-year plan for how the People's Republic of China, the PRC, wants to take the, its relationship with Latin America forward, the so-called um, the second china Salak plan with all the nations of, of Latin America except for the United States and, 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 and Canada. Um, the china Salak plan says for the first time, China wants to expand cooperation not only in cybersecurity activities, but also law enforcement activities in the fight against organized crime. And so China understands that it's a little bit sensitive to do much more than the limited but already significant military activities that, that, that they're doing. But the prospect of greatly expanded Chinese um, law enforcement collaboration in, in Latin America is a type of security collaboration, just as they've already done in Buenos Aires against a group called Pichue that we can talk about in Q&A. Um, so these type of issues not only create security concerns in the region, but they also create real opportunities that raise strategic issues for, for the United States. So um, 
I'm going to go through a few final things very quickly. I have a lot more slides, but I want to leave time for, for Q&A. So I, I, I want to just kind of expose some of the themes that we can talk about and then leave it as, as open as, as possible for you. So, um, I actually just got back one, some of my new research, which is not fully in the book, but, um, but uh, I just got back from about a week and a half in, in Mexico talking with Mexican uh, law enforcement and security officials. And so uh, I mentioned a little bit of this already, but uh, I, I talked about the fragmentation. Um, there are other things of, of concern in, in terms of, of the continued expansion of, of a new, more violent group that seems to have the business connections that Sinaloa cartel had, um, as well as uh, some of the, uh, the kind of the bloody orientation that a group like Losetas had. Um, and indeed, part of, part of the ideological organization and kind of disciplined strategic messaging that, that older groups like La Familia Michoacana or, or, or Caballeros Templares had. And that's the, this group of Jalisco Nueva Generación. They're a little bit oversold. They've kind of become the boogeyman that, that Al-Qaeda became for us in Afghanistan. Um, however, they do present very significant um, concerns. They took advantage of the weakness of the Sinaloa cartel after El Chapo was, was deported here to the United States to expand in about six different major Mexican states. Um, they've kind of inserted themselves in a lot of the other ongoing fights in Mexico um, and have really become a factor of, of concern. Um, if all of you remember the episode that occurred back in the, the mid-90s in, 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 in Somalia, when we, uh, um, something that was memorialized in, in a movie called Black Hawk Down, um, when you know, we and our hubris uh, were basically flying one of our indestructible, um, you know, undownable helicopters in a place that uh, a, a Somali with a knowledge of, of U.S. tactics, techniques and procedures and an RPG knew how our helicopter was going to come around, shot an RPG and, and took a helicopter down. And that was kind of a, a wake-up call for us. Well, in 2015, um, the Mexican Army, also very, very capable, had their own Black Hawk Down uh, affair. And that was when Jalisco Nueva Generacion, uh, again, a guy who knew Mexican TTP and Mexican Serena TTP with an RPG, took down, um, and actually it was, I think it was a Puma helicopter. It wasn't one of our Blackhawks, but, uh, um, but that's not the fault of the helicopter. It was, so Sikorsky is not paying me for this. Um, but um, the point was, and, and A, um, you know, that made it very personal for Sedena against Jalisco Nueva Generacion, but it also illustrated the power and the, the orientation of, of, of this new group. Um, and there's a lot of other things going on. So, for example, you have new fights in Baja California. You've got new fights in, in the border region. Um, there's some signs that, uh, that basically some of the, the rough equilibrium in Tamaulipas, uh, even the position of uh, Jalisco Nueva Generación itself, may be coming un, unhinged a little bit in Tamaulipas. You have some indication that a once very feared group, Los Zetas, is engaged in a resurgence in, in the, uh, the Yucatan Peninsula. So there's a lot of stuff going on all at once. And, and oh, on top of that, the opioid crisis in the United States, um, where are most of those uh, drugs coming from? Um, an, era, an area of Mexico that's already a complete mess. Uh, Guerrero, where there's about 50 different bands in a, in a situation of, of almost complete you know, lawlessness, um, as well as, uh, as, as, well as uh, uh, surrounding provinces. But so in many ways, that increased demand for heroin in the Midwest and in the East Coast of the United States is basically fueling a new fight in the area that is the major heroin-producing zone of, of Mexico. Um, and there are other things. You have uh, massive gasoline robberies, which by some estimates may be as much as a $2 billion a year uh, industry, which, which impacts uh, Mexico's major uh, export industry, uh, you know, uh, uh, oil, uh, Pemex. It's something that is, is very strongly out of control. Um, and the Mexican security forces are trying to do very important things uh, with respect to the security law. So um, 
I, I raise the issue of Mexico because um, Mexico is under a lot of stress right now, and, and, and NAFTA and, and other things just add to that stress. I think it's, it's something of strategic concern for us. So again, um, in my analysis of, of, of how do we understand you know, how we can um, learn from our partner nations and things that work or don't work in the region. And these are the areas that I focus on in the book. Again, I, I look at a comparison of whole government strategies, different interdiction things, high value added targeting, armed forces cooperation, um, how different governments do intelligence cooperation, police reforms, um, transnational organized group, how, how you go after finance. Some of the most heroic but undersung work in the region against organized crime groups is actually done by, um, by banking organizations, by the treasury organizations, by organizations that are called financial intelligence units, usually in coordination with FinCEN and, and others. Um, penitentiary control, again, in Northern Triangle and other places, getting control over the penitentiaries and making them, uh, basically turning them from a place where you at least get the criminals off the streets and not a place where they become incubators for new criminals and basically command centers for the criminals that already exist is, is fundamental. Because if you don't have that control, then effectively you're not achieving anything and you're actually making the problem worse through the people that you, that you take down. Um, and of course, international cooperation. So again, I'm just going to hit a few highlights and then get to the um, to, to the very very end here. So when I talk about um, you know, whole government strategies, again, just about the entire region is is doing processes of, of policy planning, um, some better than others. But I think the key thing to to shape here is that the process of generating policy planning documents does not mean that you actually have a well-formulated whole-of-government policy, nor that you actually implement that policy effectively. And I think uh, more attention needs to be given there. Um, in terms of interdiction, um, the easy to solve problem, um, just about every, um, actually about half of the region has basically uh, aircraft shoot down laws. And sometimes actually just having the laws, and they're actually progress that's been made of getting some of the other things like actually buying the radars. Um, the Israelis have been very, very good at, at selling radars when we oftentimes have not been willing to, to, to sell them. Um, but on the other side, what you, what you find is that other things, um, many of our Latin American partners have a real problem in terms of interceptor aircraft. Uh, the Argentines and the Uruguayans are, are particular cases, but the Guatemalans, I mean, the Guatemalans are trying to basically intercept narco flights with, uh, with basically light, light aircraft, you know, Beach King Airs, for, for, for example, um, which, uh, which uh, you know, does not always uh, the, the best. Um, there's almost a universal discomfort with the legal framework. Um, and this is oftentimes in previous administrations prevented us from interacting as closely with basically our partner nation's efforts to protect their airspace as they could. And in 1992, as you may recall, there was a very unfortunate shoot down of, of, of a missionary and her child in, in Peru by the Peruvian Air Force um, in which the US had basically a role in the intercept. And ever since then, um, we've tried very, very hard to keep our hands from having any dirt on them at anything that could be an, an accidental shoot down. But in many ways, that is impeded our willingness or our ability to work with our partner nations in, in that aspect. Um, naval interdiction, there's a lot of very interesting things that are going on in terms of, of, of the repurposing of boats that are seized from narco-traffickers. Uh, also, um, metal shark and, and other basically flat-bottom boats, because it's not just about the control of the seas, it's about control of the rivers. Um, also, the maritime challenge is a very difficult challenge, especially you see a lot of drugs coming up through the Pacific, uh, landing now, um, basically passing Guatemala, now landing in the, the Pacific coast of Mexico, places like Oaxaca, Guerrero, etc. Um, but getting basically things like going after semi-submersibles, submersibles, towed buoys with GPS locators, it's a really, really hard problem that 
that, that, that needs a lot of, of attention to. Um, land, there, there's a lot of, of work that's being done with, with, with military police task forces that, that deserves more, more attention. Um, almost all of that partner nations, the reason Brazil is doing some very good things, although with, with a great delay with their uh, system for frontier control. But as of now, it's, it's only been implemented in one very, very small part of, of Brazil's uh, frontier. Um, high value added targeting, what I'll say very quickly is, is that what needs to be done with that targeting is really a lot more attention um, to um, the, basically the dynamics and the effects of high value added targeting has gotten a bad name because obviously once you take down a leader of the group, whether Afghanistan or Mexico or Central America, um, you generate violence and uncertainty associated with that. Does that mean that you just don't take down the leaders of the groups? And by leaders, I'm not only talking about the capos, but I'm also talking about the accountants and other key personnel. Um, the answer is absolutely yes, you need to take down the leaders of, of the groups. That's a very important, necessary part. But what I would argue that we don't often do well is anticipate the second and third and fourth order effects of how the other groups will react once we take down the leaders and to be prepared or to try to channel that. Um, in any physical military operation, a commander doesn't just start shooting up the enemy without calculating how the enemy will adapt and where he will try to maneuver after you, after you, the initial engagement. But what I would argue is, is there's more that we need to do to anticipate how the enemy will react systemically after we do the high value added targeting to better be on top of those dynamics that generate so much violence and, and chaos. Um, Okay, armed forces, and we, so we talked a little bit about armed forces police cooperation. Again, there are many interesting examples. We, we can talk about the PMOP and, and Fusina in Honduras. We can talk about examples uh, such as uh, Zeus Command and, 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 and the Ferries in, in El Salvador. We can talk about some, some of the work that, uh, that is really being done um, you know, throughout the region. Um, and what you also see is new attempts in imposing laws. So Mexico has a very interesting law that is actually on the books since last December, but has, I think, 18 constitutional challenges against it. But having worked in Mexico, having worked in Peru, having worked in El Salvador, you find that in the entire region there is deep discomfort in the Latin American armed forces, whether they are legally protected to do and under what circumstances do the things that are being asked of, of them. This is kind of the reciprocal side of the human rights concern. Because if you're a military officer, if you're asked to, to do something, what's often neglected is that if you are accused of a human rights violation, um, you, know, you will not necessarily have free legal aid from the armed forces. You will be basically taken off the books, and you will have to pay, you know, oftentimes on your $600 a month salary, um, for your own legal representation. And so if you're a military guy out in the field, if you're a Peruvian officer working in the Vrime, knowing that if you get accused of, of a, a rights violation, um, you know, whether it's true or not, um, what will that happen to you and your career and your family and your finances? So you know, if I'm in a patrol, okay, if I'm ordered to do this, I will do what I've been ordered to do. But it creates strong incentives to, to avoid getting involved in things. It basically sub-optimizes the, the mission. And so there's a real desire, there's a real effort right now across the region to better legally define the role, um, I think legitimately and otherwise, um, of, of how the armed forces, not to just give impunity to the armed forces, but to give better legal definitions of, of when and where they operate and what the responsibilities are and in which court, et cetera, for, for everyone's protection. Um, intel coordination, I'll just say that a lot of these new organizations, um, you have a problem in which it's almost universal across the region. You have 
politicized civilian intelligence working with military intelligence organizations that often have you know, combinations of, of, of army intelligence, if you're lucky, air force intelligence, naval intelligence that may or may not cooperate or be integrated at the staff level, which may or may not have the, the people to actually do the integration, um, on top of which you will oftentimes have uh, intelligence in the prosecutor's office, which may or may not talk to the other intelligence organizations. Um, and, and, you know, and, and, you know, and all or some of those may actually get some or more uh, intel from the United States and, and others. And so there are challenges there. And when, for example, an organization like Honduras creates a new organization, a, a multi-agency organization like FUSINA to, to go after, um, well, FUSINA has police working for it and military working for it. So do you think that FUSINA was actually getting direct cooperation from police intelligence to the new organization? Um, in the end, FUSINA actually had to create its own integral intelligence organization to adjust for, you know, so the problems compound themselves. Um, again, I mentioned penitentiary, uh, penitentiary reform, and oftentimes it's not, it's not that all penitentiaries are bad. Um, the Mexican penitentiary system has gotten a lot of bad press. Um, they've actually made some pretty significant reforms at the federal level. The state level in places like Topo Chico is still absolute chaos. And also, sometimes it's not so much long-term incarceration alone, um, but where one of the big undersung problems is, is, is basically pretrial detention. You have situations in which, um, if you're accused of something, you can basically be in pretrial detention, literally in packed jail cells without any comforts whatsoever for a year, two years, three years, um, you know, oftentimes as much time as, as the theoretical sentence that you could get um, until you actually get to trial. Um, and, and so in that time, you are you know, at, at risk, your family is, at ri you know, your family is trying to you know, keep you safe, et cetera. And so um, at the end of the day, if you could be put into highly dangerous pretrial detention facilities, and so who is rounded up and who is not rounded up? So it adds to the sense of impunity and injustice, um, and it has a lot to do with the management of, of the, the prison system. Okay, so we'll go, again, financial assets, penitentiary control reform, um, international coordination, again, there's a lot of work in multinational institutions. Uh, so example, I mentioned uh, CFAC, I, I mentioned Conference of American Armies, I mentioned the OAS system. Um, there's a lot of good coordination. Again, I mentioned the Combi Frons, the, the, the binational um, frontier committees, where basically military officers on both sides work together to, to interchange intelligence and, and to better coordinate in, in the, the patrol of, of frontiers. Um, so there's a lot more that can be done, not just philosophically, but at the practical level of, of you know, in the context of getting corruption under control, making some of those things work better. And so again, last two slides, recommendations, and, and basically what I, and we can come back to this in detail, but what I basically say is more of a systemic organization, more of learning the best practices from each other and in each of these, these different areas. Um, and certainly on the U.S. side, um, again, Latin America needs more resources and attention. Um, so, you know, if you think about the two areas that we're most pulling resources away from right now, Mexico and Central America, were the two areas whose immigrant flows most influenced U.S. elections um, and in the current posture, which creates a bit of an irony that Latin America is so important that we regard it as an internal issue by which we select a president, and yet we systematically underfund every program that is you know, responding to the, the, the challenge. Um, on top of that, uh, you have, um, and again, a need for, we talk a really good talk about intergovernmental, interagency. Matter of fact, uh, you know, a lot of times our, our Latin American partners mimic our own talks about interagencies. But what do we do with our own programs? Are our own programs guided by a strategic concept and coordinated? Um, you know, 
I won't directly answer that, but I will just say that in my experience, I think oftentimes whatever the good policy documents that we have, there's a tendency that when the State Department people and, and others get involved in that fight for their line item, it becomes about defending this judicial reform program, getting more money for this line item, what do we do for extra end-of-the-year funds? And, um, and although the ambassador, to the extent there actually is a confirmed ambassador and not just the DCM acting, um, that the ambassador actually pulls it all together at the country team level for one country. Um, oftentimes the strategic vision of what we're trying to achieve um, and holistically how military efforts and state efforts in, in building partner capacity, how that all comes together gets lost at the, at the end of the day. So we tell our partners to do it, but then we don't do it ourselves. Um, and I'm very happy, for example, Assistant Secretary of State, uh, newly, newly um, named, I think not yet appointed, Kim, Kim Breyer on, on the state side, um, an excellent uh, new, 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 new DASI, Sergio de la Pena, um, of course, uh, waiting on, uh, you know, for a confirmation on, with respect to both state and, and National Security Council. But, but these things are important to having coherent whole government strategy in, in this region, which is, which is so important uh, for us. Um, and frankly, also in our discourse, we oftentimes forget that we can learn as much from our Latin American governments, and our partners, um, as we can teach them. I mean, we have uh, very talented people in places like the Seventh Group who, who you know, teach our Latin American counterparts certain, certain, certain things. But for example, if you talk about uh, when we engage in Afghanistan, elsewhere in the world, I, I remember being in a conversation with one of my colleagues um, who actually had served in Afghanistan, very, very distinguished a colonel, and I said, when, when you were over, when we were administering, administering programs out there, and um, so we were basically operating indirectly in support of, you know, um, you know, Afghan elders and village leaders. And so when we big U.S. Army um, were basically giving this support to this guy who had some responsibility, um, you know, what are some of the, the, the concerns? Well, maybe he was corrupt or the perception that he was the gringo guy, um, that, you know, if, if you got on his bad side, if he named you the Taliban, then, well, you know, he had the, the, the airstrikes behind him. Um, so all of the things that aren't about how we think things should work in the United States, but we have to think about all the complications of basically military support and engagement in a corrupted complex, and, and how do you manage that effectively? Well, I can guarantee you that if you go to a very experienced seasoned officer from El Salvador or from Honduras or from Costa Rica or from Colombia, and you say, well, you know, you as a military officer supporting civilian authorities, what are the things that you have to work about? Um, these are things that from you know, the inception of their military careers, our counterparts have to deal with in their own countries. And so I would argue that there are a lot of things that we can learn that make us more effective in other parts of the world that are really the bread and butter of the fights that our Latin American partners have to deal with every day. And so there's as much that we can benefit from as there is the ways that, that we can help. So again, a lot of information. Um, I, I apologize kind of for the fire hose treatment. But at the end of the day, what I want to close with is, is this idea. If you look at where more investment has gone from the United States than any other part of the world, um, where more trade comes from, including from, from, from China, it's, it's Latin America, more of the US produce and, and critical goods that we rely on in, in the wintertime, you know, think about Mexico and, and other places, um, you know, let alone, I mean, where all those flowers come for your sweetheart on, on Valentine's Day, but, but Colombia and, and now increasingly Ecuador. Um, if you look at where the refugee flows come from, if you look at, at, at issues of, of concerns over transmission of diseases and human flows, I come back again and again to something that we often forget. Um, 
there is no region of the world that most directly affects U.S. prosperity, companies, U.S. security through human flows and others than Latin America in, in the Caribbean. And, and so um, you know, it's understanding the fundamental nature of that interdependence and how important it is to, to our security. Um, the fact that it's not at war doesn't mean that if the region becomes more of a problem, it will not force us to, to completely rethink our engagement globally. And so Again, I'm looking at problems like transnational organized crime. I think there's a really strong case to be made for giving Latin America a bit of its due, um, given the integral importance that they have geographically, economically, and really through the ties of of family that binds us to our Latin American partners. So thank you very much, and uh, look forward to your, your questions. Thank you very much, Evan. I see a lady. Yeah. Hi, thank you so much for your talk. Um, I wanted to, my name is Christina Arms. I'm with the American Foreign Policy Council. I wanted to ask you more about how you mentioned the flows from Venezuela into Colombia and that they're going into these high cocaine producing areas. What ha- can you elaborate a little bit more on that, and what have the the nature of the interactions been, and how these two communities uh, interacted with each other? Sure, absolutely. And I think I'm I'm actually going to stand up so I don't put myself to sleep here. But um, but I think I mean, if it's good with you, okay. Yes. So um, no, great question. And and again, I'm not sure if we have. A, I don't think we have a, a map uh, available. I, I should have brought a map, but uh, no. Okay. So, um, okay, so if you're familiar with, with the geography of, of Colombia and, and, and Venezuela, and it's certainly not the, the only place, but, um, but essentially from the north coast of, of Venezuela in, in kind of the greater Caracas area, there's, there's a mountain range, and that mountain range extends into the, um, basically to the, to the border with Colombia. And traditionally, that border has always been very porous. Um, but right there, if you, there's basically highways that go along both sides of the Cordillera there. And if you follow the main highway, you come to a Colombian city called, called Cucata, um, and in the province of, of Norte de Santander. And so traditionally, Cucata has been a major focus. But as things have gotten bad in Venezuela, well, the first waves of Venezuelans, um, you know, some with money would go to, to Miami. There's, there's now a place that's, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's uh, uh, referred to sarcastically as, 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 uh, as West Venezuela, which used to be West in, in Miami. And, and actually, uh, there, there's similar names given in other parts of the region. But really, the, the Venezuelan middle class with money as they began to, to pull their money out of, of the country, would go to Miami or would go to other parts, would go to Europe, um, would go, would set themselves up in, 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 in Panama City, other places. Um, those with less means or those who initially uh, just needed not to permanently leave the country, but who, um, you know, who wanted to buy food or, or, or other supplies that they couldn't get in Venezuela, or in some cases to basically earn money to basically, they wanted to stay in Venezuela and support a family in Caracas. And so you would get basically temporary migrants, just as you have temporary Mexican and other migrants who would come to the United States. And so you have Venezuelans who would, um, you know, again, they would uh, you know, come to Cucata to try to sell wares, or, or who would then make the, the journey through Cucata all the way to, to Bogota or, or Medellin, other places, um, and would work oftentimes in, 
informal sector and, and frankly, in, in areas of, you know, such, such as prostitution and others. You would hear these, these crazy stories about, you know, Venezuelan women with, with, uh, with, you know, who are medical doctors in, in Venezuela who would work in, as, as, as prepagos, as, as prostitutes in Bogota in, in order to, to maintain their families. I mean, just crazy stories. Um, but um, so, so the bottom line is, is you had these temporary flows, people who would cross over into Cucuta or cross over into Colombia and stay there for a while and come back. Now, increasingly, those flows have become more and more permanent flows, and they've radiated out throughout all of, of, of Colombia. And so, again, um, you know, you have uh, certain, um, you know, certain parts of, of Bogota, certain parts of Medellin, where you have just enormous Venezuelan communities. But, it, but it's not just Colombia. I should mention that going into um, Roraima State in, in Brazil and then radiating all in, into Brazil, you have, because you basically have to go through a, a relatively sparsely populated, uh, difficult, you basically have to cross the Brazilian Amazon um, to get into the south of, of Brazil. But there's still substantial migration. And, and indeed, in the north of Brazil, in Roraima State, you have a substantial Venezuelan uh, community. Again, I mentioned Santo Domingo. I mentioned Panama City. I, I, I mentioned San Jose. Um, it, it's um, and if you look at the eastern part of of of, of Venezuela, um, you actually find um, because there aren't as many uh, easy to pass routes. You basically have a more rural community that started out traditionally would cross over the approximately seven to twenty miles, or would take the ferry um, into Port of Spain, Trinidad, or other parts of Trinidad. Again, kind of like with Cucuta, initially selling wares and and, and and working for a little bit in Trinidad because the, the, the Trinis are a very open society and they've traditionally welcomed the, the Venezuelans. Uh, you know the stories of you know selling guns for toilet paper and, and things like that, but but certainly not just guns. Um, but again, those have now become Become, you know more permanent flows and um, but specifically with, with Colombia I think to, to get back to your question what what has basically happened is, is again um, in that area I mentioned Norte Santander um, and so north of Cucuta you've got um, and uh, the most troubled one of the most troubled areas um, which is which is Catumbo that I, that I mentioned and so again, um, kind of, so traditionally you had the um, the second of the guerrilla movements, the um, the um, the, um, the, uh, the ELN, which was operating there. Uh, you had, um, and th those had become strengthened. You had a paramilitary group uh, that uh, that calls themselves um, you know, that uh, those operating there there as well. Uh, that the, the EPL. Um, that uh, and then you've had other basically criminal groups, Bakrim groups. And so again, Pelusos, Puntilleros, the, the names keep changing. But so in that whole kind of eastern plain, you, again, you have these problems. So you've got, so you've got the Colombians coming, so you've got the Venezuelans coming in, um, basically desperate to, you know, find ways to support themselves on, on the Colombian side of the border. And so they get recruited fundamentally by the, um, by the Bacrim groups and in the other groups. Um, you have a role by the Venezuelan National Guard and, and others um, who are, again, basically taxing the, the contraband flows. And so they basically profit from the goods that are going through in both directions. And, develop, and they've developed ties on the Colombian side. Of course, on the Colombian side, you've got the FARC, who um, a certain part of, of the money and the guns in the FARC is, is believed to still be on the Venezuelan side. And so, you know, in part that that's, that, that's hidden in. There's a certain back and forth with, with the FARC there, uh, which, again, as the situation in Venezuela and you know, devolves, the position of those actors you know, then, then becomes increasingly relevant. Um, so it's a real cauldron of, of different things. And so at the risk of going on for, for 20 minutes, I'm not sure if I've directly addressed your question, but, um, but it's, it's, just, it's a real, it's not something I think is fully understood. And it's, it's something, 
and I remember, there were basically three scenarios that the Colombian government had in terms of the number of refugees. There was kind of a, a low, about what we expect, and then a high. Um, and what is the number that have crossed all, already is basically already beyond that high scenario. And so um, you know, things such as the, the prospects of, of United Nations fundings on the Colombian side, because the Venezuelans will accept it on their side, uh, is a very real, um, you know, these are concerns for the, you know, for, for, for the Colombians, the, the ultimate impact. So, um, so it's, um, and it's certainly something where as we pull our support back from the, or as, as we transition away from the close relationship that we had with the Colombians in, in, in the campaign against the FARC, the question then becomes what, you know, what, how will the United States help our Colombian partners to, to respond to, to these new to these new challenges. And I think it's something where we really need to stand you know, by our Colombian partners in, in, in that aspect, um, both to help stabilize Venezuela um, as well as to, to deal with the effects. But, but thank you for the question. So um, we'll go to the left there. Okay. So Roger. Uh, we're locking the doors, all of you. And um, the paper will be handed out. We're locking the doors, and you'll be handed pen and paper, and the quiz will begin. You'll be asked to write down everything Evan just said. <laughs> Thank you. That was a tremendous Pleasure. presentation. Uh, Please indulge me for just one moment. I want to thank Evan. You were a mainstay. When I was at the Defense Department, uh, any subject you pick, you always develop in the most interesting way. And I, there's so much in there, I don't even know where to begin. Uh, Don Jaime, um, we go way back. Uh, I remember when I was in elementary school, coming back in the rainy season from my lessons at the at the Alliance Francaise in San Jose, and uh, stopping either on my way to my grandmother's house or afterwards by your law offices, which were right around the corner. You may not know this, but you are standing in front of one of the great uh, warriors of the last battles of the Cold War in Central America. Right there, look at him. There he is. Uh, uh, dealing with the Contras, uh, the Sandinistas, and the FMLN, and the Russians and Cubans, and everybody in Central America. Uh, the, you did great things, don't I? Thank, mean? You. Mm. Thank you. And uh, Evan, you asked a question, basically, which was, how is it possible that we're not paying more attention to all this crap going on right in our backyard? And, and uh, I can summarize everything I've learned in Washington in 30 years in one sentence. Would you like to hear it? It's the bigger a problem is, the easier for everyone to walk away from it. And you stopped just short of where I thought you were going to go. Uh, and, and, I'll, and I'll formulate the question. I'll formulate it now so you have time to think about the answer before I make my, the, 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 the point I want to make. My question is, um, you talk about fragmentation and such, and you talk about whole of government solutions. Who in your ideal world would be on our side uh, the right belly button, the right person in charge of pulling together this whole of government thing, because uh, I, it was not obvious to me uh, when I was at DOD for some of our major problems. Uh, I, I know that if we had allowed the State Department to be in charge of the thing, uh, the punks at INL would have run away with the problem for, for Colombia, and we'd still be uh, 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 answering questions for the Senate as to why Colombia was a failed state and why cocaine production, you know where I'm going with all this. Who should be in charge in an ideal world? Who, who, what, I mean, who, what do you think? 
I just want to, uh, that's the question. I'll come back to it. You can't get away from it. Um, I do want to point out uh, what I regard as the actual emergency we have on our hands. Uh, uh, and it is one you alluded to many times, which is Venezuela. I think that is an actual emergency. Uh, and it's about, it's about to explode. And to give an idea of the dimension of the problems we're going to have, the Iranians are there, as you know. There's drugs, there's, there's this, there's that. Um, as the president of Chile pointed out in his interview, a wonderful interview in the Washington Post this weekend, uh, Venezuela has 4,000 generals. And whatever you may think of them, they are generals. They knew how to run things, more or less. Uh, what are they going to do? Um, my personal opinion, which I have not been shy to say, is it, it is now time for us to openly urge the junior officers of the Venezuelan military to overthrow the government. If that fails, to urge the street demonstrations to turn violent and chase the government out by force. Uh, and I think none of us here on this side are prepared to deal with the consequences of that when it happens as it inevitably will. As Jaime remembers, in the 1980s, there were countless, countless organizations, small think tanks, uh, citizen groups here in the United States, in Central America and other places, who were dedicated to supporting the freedom fighters in Central America, uh, uh, regardless of how you can see them, who were dedicated to struggling against communists and all that kind of thing in Central America. It was a tremendous intellectual infrastructure that had been brewing for decades that fought and won that fight. I mean, I say we won. Daniel Ortega is the owner of the largest shopping mall in Central America, and I think that is a great definition of victory. Um, this situation in Venezuela is something that I would urge Don Jaime at Hudson, the War College, and everybody. We need to think of how we are going to deal with when this collapse comes, when, uh, how we want to urge the military to behave, what we are going to do with this military, uh, what is the role of a military in overthrowing a government in our, in our modern democratic age. All these questions need to be asked. No one is paying any attention. It's a scandal. It's an absolute scandal. So. And one last thing. My friend uh, Hampton Sides, the author, some of you may have read uh, his, his books, Ghost Soldiers, uh, Hellhound, Blood and Thunder. He advised me that in order for a book to be successful, the title had to be a good name for a cocktail. Now, transnational organized... Waiter, <laughs> I would like a transnational organized crime in Latin America and the Caribbean. That's good. But I think we need to, maybe for your next book, and you had a lot of very promising things in the, in, in the uh, there. I mean, whole of government is a good one. Uh, fragmentation. I'd like a waiter of fragmentation, please. You know, that kind of thing. So I, <laughs> congratulations on this one. I'm dying to read it. But who do you think should be in charge at our side? Thank you very much for the, for the questions. Um, and uh, so I will publicly commit now that uh, if you are willing to, to accept the challenge, um, I will be happy to reach out to you to, to, uh, to suggest the, the name of my next book. Uh, <laughs> um, some very good questions that, you, that I'd be honored. Um, so, but some very, and again, I, I must emphasize that I, these are my opinions as, as an academic and, and in no way represent others uh, um, who, uh, who have, the, I guess I have two answers to that. Um, I think the, 
there's an institutional answer of, of where it makes sense based on powers and laws and things, and there is the um, what you know. How do you work with the team that you want to work with? And as you know, every administration has different preferences about the role that they give to the NSC versus state versus DoD, um, and um, and so my. First inclination is that it needs to be a structure that actually matters to the current administration, to, to, to President Trump and the people that he has in key positions of, of authority. And so, um, you know, if if President Trump wants to work for the NSC, then um, you know, let I, I think the NSC has those 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 abilities. The NSC has been expanded or not during various different times, and it certainly has the reach. Uh, NSC obviously would have to work through state and, and work through others. And of course, as you know, NSC has CHOP on, but is not the primary author for some of the key policy documents, but certainly would need to give um, authority to whatever strategies you know, come out. Um, having said that, I think the logical place, although in practice it hasn't always worked out well, as you alluded to, is, is state. Because at the end of the day, um, we do empower state to pull together the country team, MS, it used to be MSRP, but basically the country team strategies. Um, you know, we, we empower state in the Western Hemisphere and to, um, to, to be able to think you know, strategically. Um, however, obviously with the coordination of the DOD, and I, I think there are a lot of things that Secretary Tillerson recognized were uh, Less than functional at at its at, at, at state, um, and so um, it's you know kind of like the OAS, um, you know, the vehicle that makes the most sense to use is not the vehicle that you know you first have to do some fixing before you use it, rather than just to, to go with something else. Um, but um, but, and, but but clearly, I mean, you know, DoD cannot be at the expense of state. Um, but also, I do not think that you can implement a policy from a DOD perspective and then coordinate it with state because just in terms of, of the authorities and, and in terms of, um, you know, frankly, and again, as somebody who works for DOD, uh, if you say, what are some of the most effective strategic things that we need to be doing, not only to resist against, you know, Russian and Chinese and other encroachment in the hemisphere, but also to fight against transnational organized crime? It has to do with institution building. It has to do with, with working through, you know, polygraphs and other things to, to, to help to root out police corruption and, and databases and institutional strengthening. Not just whatever program to help an institution, but legitimate institution building things. Because um, by strengthening those institutions, we, I, I believe, help to restore faith in, in, in democracy. Um, but again, with, with the appropriate balance between security and, and, and other things, um, you know, I, I think that there are things that need to be changed about the role that USAID has in, in that process um, to make them a, a, a tool and not, um, you know, Pursuing a, a different agenda, I think what, what they do has to be integrated within the security concept. But so I guess my my answer would be that um, to the degree you know, state should have the lead, but only to the extent that who is in charge at state and the disposition of the the president um, wants to actually work through state, which I think is an open question. Um, the other thing that I would say um, with respect to your Venezuela question is, in, and I'm going to remain agnostic. I um, I am very concerned about our encouraging our Venezuelan brothers and partners to do things that we are not willing as a country to support. Um, you know, watch what you encourage if we are not there once something uh, is set in motion. Um, you know, we're talking about, as you know well, um, you know, People dying, displacement, you know, significant chaos, and you know that may be necessary. But I think there's there's two conditions. Um, 
you know, one is that we need to make a very strong legal case working through the Organization of American States, working through other institutions, basically about the constitutional illegitimacy. Um, and, you know, it's clear. We just need to make sure that it, it, it's established. Um, you know, that this is not a legitimate government in Venezuela. This is a government that has basically, you know, hijacked a, you know, the wealth and resources of, of, of a state now is basically a bank robbery in, in, in progress. But um, we need to make it absolutely clear and that our partners are clear in the inter-American system, um, at least the majority of them that are not accepting Venezuelan oil money and have other reasons, um, that, that we have, that we move multilaterally um, for any actions taken in, in Venezuela. And again, the other thing is that whatever happens in Venezuela, that, you know, I think it's, um, you know, whatever we, if we help start something, um, we better, by gosh, be willing to to back up whatever the results are, um, and not you know leave people high and dry, which you know, has happened in other occasions. And so um, th that would be my response. But I, I think you, you raise very important points. For the record, uh, in my view of how it worked on Colombia, which is our great success, mm -hmm. it was a bipartisan success. It was a bipartisan success of many years. Uh, and the bipartisanship was an essential part of the success because it showed there was no alternative for the FARC or anything with regard to the US policy. There was no alternative. They could not knock the United States out of the game. Uh, both. And they come to mind because they were great friends and admirers and participants with this institution, both uh, Doug Feith and the late Peter Rodman, my, both bosses of mine at one point, uh, were astounded in their, in their writings to say that in Colombia, the national security system actually worked as intended. Um, there was a process. Uh, all the stakeholders were at the table. There was a there was an honest broker. Uh, uh, it was uh, the whole of the age of the administration was brought behind a policy. Then this policy was sold in Congress, and by God, it worked. Probably the only time the national security system has actually worked as intended, but it did. And there may be a lesson there for Latin America and how to deal with all these issues. Uh, one last question, gentlemen. Please uh, name an affiliation. Kemar Matis, Organization of American States, Secretariat of Multidimensional Security. No, I am here specifically for you, Dr. David Ellis. Uh, I have read your um, bio. We are interested in working with you. And uh, the meat of the matter here is that we have seen a lot of people focus their interests solely on Latin America, notably Venezuela, um, Nicaragua, Mexico. To recent events, we see interest being focused on Colombia, very recent. Now, you are familiar with the fact that we have um, Hezbollah at the tri-point border between Brazil, uh, Argentina, and Paraguay, right? Now, we also have uh, the fact that Trinidad and Tobago, which is a small Caribbean state, has the most ISIS fighters in the Western Hemisphere. 
And I'm glad you raised the issue of institution earlier because this is no longer a US problem. This is a hemispheric problem. And the fact that it's a hemispheric problem, we all have to work together in solving that and work where I'm going. When we have a massive migration in Mercosur, you don't need a visa. We can't, you don't need a visa. You don't even need a passport because you have travel cards. How do we identify who are these people within our nations? In the Caribbean, we have CARICOM. You have free movement, right? Chile also have free movement with its um, southern partners. Chile don't need a visa to come to the United States. How do we recognize the issues that people have, such as one, proper documentation, two, the movement of people across the 13 Caribbean states, the 15 South American states, the nine Latin, um, Central American states, Mexico, and the United States. And one factor that we always seem to miss out is Canada. Because guess what? How many people now within the hemisphere don't need a visa to go to Canada? But is it Canada not the US largest unmanned border? These are things that we have to identify. So what I would want you to expound on is the link between trans-organized crime within our region and the return of um, foreign terrorist fighters. What is the link that we have there? And how do we solve that issue going forward? Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, first of all, before I, I begin the answer, let me just say, and I recognize that there are a number of people uh, who uh, had questions and didn't get the chance to ask them, um, and I know how, how frustrating that, that, that can be. Um, I will be happy to, to stay here as, as long as uh, you, you guys want to at least try to have some one-on-one, -on -one or, or uh, and I've got cards for conversations that you want to begin but, but, but end in another you know, occasion. Um, also, I have a, a emailing list of my occasional publications, and anybody who would like to be part of that, I would encourage you to, uh, to, to write me at, at the, my, my email address and I will be very happy to, to include you uh, on, on that. I usually publish about uh, two or three things a, a month, sometimes shorter, sometimes longer. Um, so uh, first of all, thank you. I, um, when somebody says, uh, um, I remember uh, um, uh, the last time I think somebody said, uh, Dr. Ellis, we were here for you. It was in Managua, Nicaragua, and there were uh, uh, migration authorities, and uh, it did not end well. Um, so uh, um, I, I was a little bit scared when you began that, but uh, um, uh, uh, by, 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 by contrast to my, my experience in the Managua Hilton, uh, um, your, 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 yours, uh, yours was a much more pleasant uh, um, entry. Okay. And I think you provided a, a, a number of very important issues, uh, probably about 10 good questions, but I can't answer them all. But first of all, let me say that um, you know, I am, and I, I've given the same answer in, in front of Congress. Um, for me, it is absolutely imperative that we work um, to um, not only work with the OAS, but that we have a, a healthy, functional inter-American system. Um, I think the alternatives are not strategically acceptable to the United States because um, you know if the o we need a multilateral forum to address the many problems. I mean, you addressed uh, border security. Um, you know, you, you addressed the registration of, of, of migration, including through Canada. Uh, there are a number of other things. Um, you know, I had the pleasure to work. With one of the inter-American system uh, forums, the the, uh, the Conference of American Armies, uh, which again, you know, trying to and, and I, I mentioned some of the things of um, in you know specifically in cent Central America with, with CFOC. Uh, so a lot, and, and a lot of the things with, with Columbia fronts come that so. It, 
there are, there's a lot of goodness in the inter-American system writ large. And frankly, without the inter-American system, you know, we're talking about alternatives such as CELAC, in which um, you know, the United States and, and Canada and, and, uh, you know, and non-formal, completely independent territories do not have a voice. Uh, and uh, that creates strategic vulnerabilities. I, mean, I, I mentioned that the China CELAC, you know, planned to, to, to go forth with, with the region, or, or other things such as such as UNASUR. Um, so, so I think the hell, and, and frankly, I, I think uh, the very principled stand that we've seen uh, from uh, Luis Almagro, especially on Venezuela and other issues, is an example of the way in which um, the head of the, the OAS doesn't have to be ideologically in compliant or in agreement with the United States. And Secretary Almagro has, has uh, dished out some pretty painful policy statements with respect to, to the United States. Um, but, um, but, but I think the idea of a fair principled stance, which sometimes may agree with the US, sometimes it doesn't, um, we need a healthy inter-American system. And we have a strategic interest as, as a country in, in working to, to, to make, that, uh, make that work. Um, also, what you point about, I, there's, there's a lot of false stories and misunderstanding about foreign, foreign fighters and, and other things. And there are actually multiple issues with respect to groups. Uh, first of all, as, as you know, um, although a lot of attention is given to the tri-border area, you know, Paraguay, Argentina, Brazil, um, there are actually numerous different triple frontiers, tri-border areas in, in other places where, um, indeed, I think eight Latin American presidents are of Lebanese Syrian descent. I mean, the, the civil war in Lebanon in 1975 did disastrous things. And, and frankly, some of the key players in the import-export system and the financial systems and commercial systems in the Americas are people of, of Lebanese Syrian descent, of which not all are, are Muslim. Some are, are Marianite Christians, etc. So there's a lot of misunderstanding about, about these relationships, including in Trinidad and Tobago. 95% um, or more of, and as a matter of fact, most of the, the initial um, you know, East Indian immigrants to, to Trinidad um, are you know, in, in the Asja mosques, are, are, are in the, the um, you know, basically you know, very, you know, Again, you know, have nothing to do with violence, nothing to do with radicalism. And indeed, when you actually look at what happened with the, the foreign fighters, of which I think it was about 175, um, you actually find that there were three mosques. Um, and, it, and it actually was a spin-off community that, that came out of a, an a movement that, that basically challenged the corruption back in, I believe it was the, the, the 90s in, in, in Trinidad. But out of that, you had some of the second generation of those people. Um, you basically have youth who have come to affiliate themselves with, with Islam in conjunction with, uh, with three relatively radical mosques. I think Rio Claro was, was one of them. And, you know, and, and I tell you, um, if, if you understand the dynamics in El Salvador of, of these kids you know, looking for purpose in their lives, I mean, you know, Mara Salvatrucha, Mara Diciocho gives you a sense of a family, empowerment, this and that. Um, and if you're a, a, a kid in, in, in Port of Spain or other parts of, of, of Trinidad, um, you know, Islam gives you that same sense of, of, of empowerment. I mean, you know, Mohammed is a pretty dynamic fighting, you know, doesn't take crap from people, you know, character, you know, heroic. The Islamic community defends itself. Um, so there's a lot of things that really drew in these basically these, these, these street gangs. Um, and you radicalize and you say, well, the way that you fight that sense of orient alienation is, is you go fight for, for, for the cause. I mean, that's, that is at-risk youth being redirected by a few bad apples. I mean, it's not a, 
a a dark Islamic threat coming out of Trinidad. I mean, Trinidad is you know aside from the, the tragedy of, of violence, I was there just a couple a couple of months ago, and um, you know I um, you know I, I you know the, the Trinities have a very 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 close place in my heart. Tim, yeah. it's a, so um, so so you you know what I'm talking about. Um, but so I think oftentimes in the Islamic there there are real, there are threats of, of, of communities coming in from the, the diaspora, from the, the Syrian civil war. There are issues with what happens with returnees. There are issues with transnational organized crime. Hezbollah involved in, in Colombia and other places. There's issues that, that basically that Venezuela has created an open door in terms of, of control of passports and, and, and things like that. So there's a lot of issues that are real about um, Islamic and other radical terrorist threats. Um, but you know, it's important that we get the threat right even as we, we, we try to address the threat. Um, but definitely, organization of American states and multilateral solutions have to be part. You know, we can't go it alone in, in, in the Americas. Um, you know, it's a, it's, it, it's a different world. So thank you very much for your question, and thank you all for your interest. Uh, uh, and uh, it's been a real honor, and I, and I look forward to keeping in touch with anybody who, who wants to, to stay in touch. Thank you very much. <laughs>